mustache tails. Yeah! Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Mustache Tales. Uh, Jay and I were talking before the show about who had the story, and I have it today. And it brought me back to the uh, stories of when we were shooting the sequel to Super Troopers. So Jay will introduce our guest today, but um, as I was thinking about that time when we were shooting uh, Super Troopers 2 in Massachusetts, um, one of the things that came to mind was the origin of the slow trash. Do you remember what a slow trash is, Jay? I don't. A slow trash, a slow trash is when you leave a room as if it's been totally trashed, but you don't go through the belligerent drunken actions to trash the actual room because we don't do that anymore but if we wanted to leave a space and make it look like we had totally been irresponsible in it we could arrange it to make it look like it was trashed so this happened during the the shooting of uh the sequel to super troopers when we were out in waltham mass which is a technology center outside of boston and we were all staying at the same hotel and believe it or not, we all worked very hard on that movie. There were long hours. There were lots of different locations. There were lots of big kind of comedy gags that required a lot of setups. So a uh, part of the movie was shot during the day and the other part was shot during the night. So about halfway through production, sometimes when you're making movies, you go into these things called splits. So we had shot probably 10 or 12 days of day shooting on Super Troopers. And then halfway through, we moved to splits, which meant we shot till probably six o'clock at night. And then the next day, our call time wasn't till five o'clock that evening. So we had to sleep during the day. But being the trained specimens that we are, we had to be able to recalibrate our circadian rhythm and put ourselves on the actual time zone so we wouldn't get tired the next night. So we had to stay up all night after a shoot in order to sleep during the day so we could wake up at 3 p.m. the next day. So we were in the lobby of the Waltham Hotel, and um, we were we decided the best way to do it was stay up and drink and tell stories with everyone from the cast and the, and the uh, crew and the production. We were in the lobby. Uh, we were having drinks. The bar closed at about 11.30 p.m. The manager came up to us, and he said, guys, I, I got I to gotta shut it down. Um, We've got a big technology conference that's staying in the hotel, and we've got to prep the the building for tomorrow. We said, "Well, you know, we can't do that. We, we're, we're we're working here. We, we're going into splits. We've got to stay up." And he goes, well, "Well, you know, maybe you guys can just take this up to the rooms." So the Broken Lizard guys and the cast, we all went up to um, one of these adjoining hotel rooms. We brought uh, a couple cases of beer and a couple handles of Jack Daniels. We did what we do. We stayed up. We told stories. We were hanging out. And the same manager knocked on the door um, two hours later. And he said, guys, I'm so sorry. I got to interrupt this again. We got a big technology conference coming in the morning. You guys are waking up the guests around you on the floor. Well, we go, what do we do? We're working. We got, we got to stay up. I mean, we can't go to sleep now. It'll throw off the whole movie. He goes, well, uh, I don't know if this is a good idea, but I could put you guys in one of the downstairs conference rooms. So we go, that great. I mean, that makes more sense. Just kind of sequester us in a downstairs conference room. So we get set up in this conference room downstairs. It's about three o'clock in the morning now. And we bring all our accoutrements and we're hanging out around a big conference table. There's a, a screen and everyone has a chair. It's a boardroom, essentially. And we kept carrying on doing what we do. Then at eight o'clock in the morning, this manager comes into the room again, could not believe we were still in the room. He said, guys, this conference <laughs> starts in this room in a half hour. You have to go to bed. You have to get out of here. And we looked around and we said, all right, great. Yeah, no problem. It's fine. We'll go up to the room. We'll rack for uh, six hours and go to work. But we, the room was not, we, we had been there for multiple hours, but it wasn't in bad shape. And I forget who it was. We all kind of looked around and we're like, God, we're going to look like such a bunch of losers if we stayed up drinking in this room all night. And it doesn't look like we were partying. So we decided to slow trash the room, which was we, we choreographed what it would look like if like a, if a rock and roll band had been partying in the room with Jack Daniels and beer all night. So we started taking the chairs 
and putting them on the table and then taking another chair and leaning it against the other chair to make it look like they were thrown. Then we would take beer and kind of pour it on the table to make it look like it had spilled. (laughs) And we created this pyramid. We stacked all the chairs on top of each other. We looked it over. We made adjustments. And then we all left this conference room. And as we left the conference room, there were tons of executives and ties and skirt with their bagels <laughs> and their coffee going, going into the room. And we said, okay, guys, it's all yours. You can have the room. <laughs> we slowly did what, it. it what, you, what, you le- what you left out was, you know, we were, we were kicked out of one room and we went to another room. We were kicked out of that room, went to another room. Then we went down there. What I like, my approach when hotel staff come in, tell us to quiet down is I'm like the nicest, most polite guy in the fucking country. I'm like, absolutely. No problem. Of course, we'll whisper all this stuff. You take the opposite approach. Um, You know, you you you're you're rambunctious. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? All right. We'll be quieter. And I'm like, what? And then, okay, you're like, fine. We'll move to the goddamn other room. Now we're in a caravan and you i mean it's it's one in the morning and you're cranking hip-hop on your speaker which you refuse to turn down from room to room to elevator down now another floor and each time we moved you're playing this fucking thing i'm like oh god and then all the way down to the conference room you fucking blasted your hip-hop and you were just it was a bide piper pretty new into the movie at the time and i was still trying to tell broken lizard like no this guy's cool uh, and and Heffernan was like, I don't know, man. You sure about this, dude? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not sure about this dude at all. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, so our guest uh, today is uh, Joe Collins. Uh, he's the director of photography on Super Troopers 2. Uh, you've done three films with me so what the next one you did is easter sunday with joe coy uh and then you shot the latest broken lizard movie which is called quasi with kevin heffernan directing um but we met on uh royal pains uh which yeah which is the uh show about a concierge doctor in the hamptons who you know basically takes care of rich people and to balance it out to make him a good guy he takes care of the fishermen uh and the plumbers too he's a good guy uh and and uh so it was it was a classic boondoggle i thought like we got to go out to the hamptons um you know for some part of every shoot we only shot in the summertime i did like 11 of them i'm not even sure um and (laughs) we know we go out to like east hampton and fucking I mean, we just, you know, we were on a boat, Joe and I were on a boat for three days, like, you know, hanging out with like, you know, like off floating around Montauk, Montauk you know, and it was, it was just a magical, uh, it was on the USA network. Um, And, and that's, that's ultimately where we met and it kind of blossomed into a a friendship and, you know, there was a little bit of drinking and hanging around and uh, eventually eventually i don't know you ended up shooting super troopers too which was you know we you know it, it was uh it was fantastic i mean we you know we you brought all that crew from that you worked with in new york for for all these many years and, right. and uh i just you know let me ask you a second joe do you see yourself cut off in the in the frame no oh, okay do i need to center yeah, myself maybe, more yeah you know, this is a classic example of Joe and I working on the set. I'm like, are, is your plan to cut the actor's face in half like that? Or are you, I mean, if it's a stylistic thing, uh, we'll shoot a second take and try it another way. But yeah. Uh, you said we could be artistic. <laughs> um, but you, you know, you were part of a New York scene, like starting like 80s, right? Like our uh, 89, 90. Yeah. I got in the union in 1990 in New York. So yeah, it started then working my way up from the uh, bottom. You know, I started in a rental house and then got in the union, was a trainee, a second assistant, a first assistant, an operator, second unit DP, then a DP, and now a DP director. So were you, you must've been around New York when 
the grip truck was where the cocaine was done. I was I was I was in New York when the dark room was the cocaine room <laughs> in, in New York. The, I there were literally literally times where I had to wait to turn around magazines as a as a loader because I had three prop people in the dark room with the door shut. We shot with film back then, so you had the film cans. One film can in the dark room was always dedicated to whoever whatever crew member needed to come in and do a whiff. And so you could hear the clack, 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 clack. And you'd be like, okay, how long, guys? How long, guys? Just a minute, just a minute, just a minute. And then, you know, then there'd be another grip. And then you'd have to negotiate with the grip to get in there, to get your mag done, and then get out. But that's just the way it was. Yeah. Don't, don't open the door. You'll expose the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did, you know, but the, the, there were also very few, I mean, I say very few. There were no limits on how long people really worked. Right. It was just sort of, you know, there wasn't this mandatory 11 hour day or, you know, that that when I first started, there were pretty strict guidelines um, for for features and television. But New York wasn't that wasn't that major a hub, really. It was we called it the city that gets them to the doorknob because you'd shoot all the exteriors. And as soon as someone opened a door, you're in Toronto, Uh you're in Vancouver, Uh you're back in Hollywood. So, you know, there there. The, one of the reasons for that was it was so punitive for you to shoot late, for you to shoot on oh. weekends, for you to incur meal penalties, for you to shoot overnights. So uh, in 1990, the studio, studios used to, there were three unions in the country for camera. There was the East Coast, the Central, and the West. And the contracts were all staggered. So that way the studios could pit two sections of the country against the one they were negotiating with. So they'd rotate the work around based on what area they were negotiating with. And so New York was frozen out for a while there. And then gave a bunch of uh, concessions in order to get work back. And so things changed after that. Uh, but, uh, you know, you would, if for working on like music videos or commercials, nobody gave a shit. You could work 23, 24 hours and that was it. You know, second meal, third meal, pizza, pizza, pizza. That was it. And, was- and much and much like when actors or performers start out, it's like you go to New York or L.A. Joe, you were always you started in New York. The the scene was there. The independent film scene was was booming during that time, where you could get a lot of great, a lot of good stuff was coming there, and then it would go to festivals and then sell. You did you ever say I, I'm going to go out to to the land off fruits and nuts and start uh, trying to be a DP out there and shoot, or was it all just that was your scene in New York? Well, I had gone. I was. I had gone to college in Arizona. I went to Arizona State, the Harvard of the West, and uh, I had uh, spent seven years getting a four-year degree there. And uh, I had, I had signed up for a camera course. I was always planned to go to Los Angeles. That was always my goal: was to graduate. I had got a degree in directing television. Go to LA, start working. Uh, there was a guy from New York coming out to open up General Camera West, which became Panavision Hollywood. But because the building wasn't ready yet, he had to stop and hold over for like a month in Phoenix. So he decided, well, what can I do with this equipment? I can make some money off it. I'll have a seminar. So I took a, so he, start, he did a, a month-long seminar every Saturday and Sunday, training you on camera equipment. People who were interested in the film business, you paid a fee and, you know, you got the month-long thing. His name was Charlie Gambino. And he was, you know, because he was from New York, I was, from, I was the only other guy from New York. We hit it off. And he said, look, man, if you're ever back in New York... Look these guys up. It's a company called General Camera. They represent Panavision in the East Coast. You tell them Charlie Gambino sent you, and the door will be wide open for you. I was like, okay, and I filed that away. <laughs> so in the meantime, I was like, you know, playing golf and beach volleyball. I was managing a bar, and I wasn't wasn't really actively pursuing future employment. So uh, my dad got sick. Uh, the following summer, so I came home to, to to kind of be with him. He recovered fine; everything was all right. But I wasn't due to return to Arizona for I don't know five six months because I had an open ended ticket. So I walked into General Cameron. I said, "Hey, I know Charlie Gambino." Uh, he said, uh, "Come by and say hello." And they're, "Oh, you know Charlie? Oh, come on upstairs." And that's how I got my foot in the door because it was very hard at the, in those days. You had to be family or you had to be someone in the business to get your foot in the door to get into the union. And the camera rental houses were the only way to do that because you had to meet everybody. You had to pass an oral exam. You had to pass a hands-on test. And then you had to go and get work independently on your own. And the most feasible way to do that was either to be connected or to be able, have worked at a rental house. And so that's 
they offered me a job. Uh, I said yes. And then for two years, I worked, you know, prepping camera orders and uh, learning the gear and meeting the people and, and then got in the union as a result. And then I stayed in New York. But that, because that's the barrier of entry, right? When you go up for a job, it, 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 you have to be able to get the equipment to execute the job in the way you want to do it. So you need those relationships with the places that have all the equipment in order to to be like worthy. Otherwise, you're just that the production doesn't bring you the cameras and everything. Part of what you're doing is bringing all that to the to the work to the world. Yes. And having a, having a good relationship with these places goes miles. You know, you get into budget crunches or you're, you're up against something. You need a, you need a camera, you're shooting late night and something's broken. You know, these are the guys who will go the extra yard for you because you have that relationship. So it's a, it's a good thing to have. And you, it also helps you in negotiations with producers and, uh, and, 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 and budgets. You, you, you're able to, you're in a, you're in a, a better place to, to make a deal that works out for everybody. Can I, you know, I took a, a film class at NYU and they taught us three-point lighting. Um, do you think of that? When, do, you, do you light everything still in a three-point way? And, it, and can you explain three-point lighting? Well, uh, my understanding of three-point lighting, not having graduated with, from such an esteemed program as NYU... Would be, I took a class. Uh, you I have took a one class. <laughs> Anybody could get in. I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you. Can I explain there. you what he I think? Why to get it is? in there? That, that. Sure. A uh, a front light that generally kind of lights. Let me stop you right there. No. <laughs> side front. <laughs> side front. And then a side light <laughs> that kind of you know suggests where the light source is coming from. Maybe the window and then a little bit of backlight to kind of put a little kind of glow on you. That's what what my how I was taught. In essence, that is correct. You have what's called a key light, which is your most powerful source, which is the dominant light. You have a, a fill light, which illuminates the opposite side of the key light, which, you know, kind of uh, brightens the exposure on the darker side. And then you have a backlight, which kind of differentiates you from the background, gives you an edge. That's the that's the the very basic concept of three point lighting. Yes. So why does it take you so long to light a scene? Because <laughs> these fuckers move around, <laughs> and they're, and they're worried about the bags under their eyes. <laughs> even staying up yeah, at a conference exactly. room drinking all I'm, night. That's I, the drama. I, that's not the lighting. You you are. Um, and then, I mean, you also uh, were around for the transition from film to these uh, high def cameras. So, you know, I'm experiencing that with you. But you're a very quick uh, uh, lighter of sets. I mean, you know, we spend most of our time on set shooting. And and to my view, uh, the right amount of time to light. Um, and, and obviously, you benefit a great deal from being able well, to thanks. use... You know, some of these cameras, we don't have all, all of this lighting in the room and all of the seat. And you, you know, on the, on the movie Easter Sunday, you, we built the set. So you were able to put lights in all sorts of different places and, and put them on a, on a board, which uh, is also enormously helpful. But, but yeah. A board meaning what? You could program them? For, they like were a, stationary a, a mixing and... board like you'd have in a, in a sound recording studio, only it's a mixing board for light. Basically, and you can control every light and you control every intensity. And these days you can control the color in each light uh, with the new with the new systems and technology that's out there. It's pretty extraordinary. Was there a frustration to Jay's question? Because when, when you move from film to digital, remember that like liminal phase where stuff just looked so awful for so long. There was no depth of field. Uh, two people would but everybody would be in focus if they one person was 20 yards in back of someone it looked very flat i would imagine it's almost like when doctors would learn to do surgery one way uh like at some type of transplant and then all of a sudden the machines came in and now the same doctors who used to get in there and have to cut it up or like a dp exposing the film and worrying about exposure times and lighting now we're working with remote controls i mean that's like it's like the whole game changed it was it, it it was it was a big game change. We went from film 
which is where you're with the light meter and you're, you're, working, you're working with that light meter and you're working with chemistry, you're working with a lab, and then you're working with, uh, with uh, you know, transferring to tape uh, and, and, and that whole language and, and, and methodology. Uh, then we went to actually recording on, on a digital tape, tape recording decks on the cameras. And, and it was during that transition from the, t- from, from the decks to the actual, uh, uh, you know, uh, chip recording uh, cameras, the new digital cameras that are kind of the standard today. It was in that transition where things were like, eh, I don't, you know, this, um, you know, it looks good, but it doesn't look as good. So everyone was trying to figure out a way to, to fuzz up the lenses, to, to make things less, you know, less harsh, less, you know, less, less, less crisp in this unflattering way and things because we're all used to how film looks for how, you know, for a hundred years of watching film. Uh, so that was, that was, a, that was a struggle. I honestly found the transition from going from film to digital, uh, uh, easy. I, I actually kind of liked it because it, you know, with the, with the, with the, with the right monitors, you're looking immediately at what you have. And also in terms of focus, there's no question I mean, as a focus puller, you'd go home at night. I remember going home at night and praying the next day that the lab report said, yeah, all good. So I didn't have to worry about getting fired, you know? And now, you know, immediately, you know, when you have it, you know, when you don't, and you know, when the exposure is there and you know, when the color is there that you want. And I found that, I found that freeing, uh, liberating. And I think it, uh, for me, it's one of the aspects of it that makes, makes it, uh, makes, makes me and the crew able to work uh, more quickly and be, be more, uh, more united, I guess, in terms of what we're going for visually. Well, just to frame that for a listener who doesn't know the, the old way you were talking about a focus puller. I mean, you had objects and people moving in a shot and the focus was being adjusted in real time. So the camera would be pointed at them and then the, the, somebody else's job would be putting that image in focus as it was happening. So if someone overstepped a mark or came too close or came too far away from the camera, the whole shot would be distorted. And then when you think about it, if you're close up, it'd be like uh, centimeters could distort a whole shot. So you never knew what you had that, right. That was, must've been a terror. It was brutal. I I was, I couldn't wait to, to start operating as an assistant. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, you spent your whole day guessing you have a tape measure, you throw some marks on the ground and then you just fucking hope, (laughs) you know, that's it. You know, and you're not uh, even, you weren't even looking at a screen when you were, when you were a focus puller, you didn't have a monitor in front of you, something that you were focused on. You were looking with your eye you're, and then you're like, literally, you've got your hand on the camera and you're not, you're not seeing what the lens is doing. You know, you're just kind of gauged you, you over time. You've learned where the position of your hand that rotates the gear on the, on the lens that tells you how far the focus is. And you're watching the actor hit marks and you're hoping that where your hand is here matches here, which matches that, you know, and it, and uh, so the DP, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and so Pardon the me. camera person but, would tell you, uh, it got a little buzzy on that last. Yeah, you missed him here. You missed him crossing from the table to the chair. Right. Okay, you take go take your tape measure out, remeasure it, and go again. Right. Yeah, and think of the stakes too. You've got maybe a moment that happened which was brilliant uh, between two actors. Maybe somebody had to get emotional which is hard to recreate. And if you fuck it up as the focus puller and you don't have a camera in front of you, that's on you, dude. I mean, that, yeah, like, there's no it's, escape. Uh, it sucked. You, you know, as a director, Ugh. you get, you, you learn to be very, just sort of like, you know, we could talk about it. We could argue about it. We could blame people, but the fact remains we have to reshoot this shot. Uh, and I would always, I mean, I, you know, I, I, once you realize, you know, they don't, the focus puller doesn't really talk to the director unless they have this to tell them, you know, like <laughs> they go, uh, I think you should do another one. Uh, and you're like, got it. Uh, and in order to keep the crew on your side, the director can't walk up to the actor and say, that guy fucked up. You got to go to the a- actor and go like, I loved it. I fucking loved it. But, you know, I wouldn't mind doing it one more time. Just if you could shade in, a, you know, and you're like making up some nonsense. And then then right. the crew is like, hey, we like this guy. But it's it's, you know, 
you know, it's like, or, you know, if you have to, some, sometimes an older actor would be like, what was wrong with it? I'm like, technical difficulties. <laughs> you, know, you can't blame the person because it's just not, it's such a difficult job. And there's a, there's a lot of magic to it, it looks like, because they're just like, you know, and they want so yeah. desperately yeah. to get it into focus. They're always the, they're always the crew member with the tucked in shirt. That, that crew member always has a tucked in shirt and they've got a belt and they're organized and you're like, that guy's fucking trying very hard to keep that in, in focus. So I, 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 whenever someone says, I'm like, yeah, we're going again. That's it. There's no fucking conversation about it. This is in this move on. So what what, a, what allowed the jump to happen then? I got I, my understanding was it Michael Mann was somebody who kind of was a trailblazer in digital film, where he said, "I, I, I'm going to make it look uh, as cool as it did when I shot films." I think he the first big one he did maybe was Miami Vice or something, where he said, "I think I'm gonna get it's depth a, of field. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it make it work." It was the Tom. It was Tom Cruise, Jamie Fox movie. That was shot by two different DPs. Paul Cameron was one, and there was another one. But that was a lot of that was shot on digital. I think that was the first big uh, push in a digital. I wish I could remember the name of it. Tom Cruise plays like a hitman who kind of who, who Jamie Foxx is a taxi driver and picks yeah. him up, and then his night goes to hell because because uh, Tom Cruise is taking him on this wild fucking ride. Yeah. Uh, but that was shot with a bunch of digital, and that was one of the first big uh, big digital uh, shoots, as I remember. Yeah. Uh, and you also had you also had the Dogma movement out of Scandinavia, you know, Dogma '95. Those guys were shooting on high eight, and they were just they just getting they were just letting it rip, you know, yeah, it was like were, as were, bare bones and ballsy as possible. Using lamps in their houses to light the scene, like there was no extra light allowed. Exactly, you had to just whatever yep. light. Yeah, exactly. no, there were like six. There's six rules for a Dogma movie, right? It's like one location. Uh, it has to be taking place in real time. Uh, no cuts. It was, yeah. and that yeah, was crazy. That, we, that came out of the digital. That film yeah. we shot, uh, Hayes Baby Makers. The entire movie was shot on thirty-five, and then the reshoot was shot on digital because we had some low-light night shoots, and we made mm. the decision to kind of, you know, minimize the lighting on it. And whatever, it, it turned out fine. Um, right. But it was. Would I be wrong to? to say that the 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 technology shifting from film to digital allowed was the biggest uh budget decreaser in making a movie like because it was so expensive for to shoot on film but i i think that some of the reasons why uh that it had a ripple effect on stuff because it brought the budget down significantly technically and that's what kind of allowed people to start squeezing wages across the board on production. That, that that's what I, I felt like over I the don't, last I, fifteen years. I haven't personally. I haven't experienced that. Um, I mean, I've experienced I've experienced lots of squeezes in, in in other ways, but nothing that I could directly relate to that. Not saying that that's not true or accurate in in other avenues of production. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that the switch the switch to digital. Originally, everybody thought. We're going to save on lighting. We're going to save on film. We're going to save on processing. We're going to save on the labs. We're going to save on all this bullshit. We're going to save on reshoots. We're going to save on all this stuff. Well, it turns out that the camera crew now is like the biggest department on set. You used to have like three, three, three folks. Now you've got, you've got two operators, one of them steady cam. You've got two first assistants, two second assistants, two loaders. You've got a digital imaging technician. You've got a utility cable person, and you've got the DP. You know, and, and it used to be that you'd have like eight, nine grips, eight, nine electricians, three camera kids. Now it's now that's completely changed. Also, with the resolutions that we're shooting, you know, post-production facilities, uh, editing, all this sort of stuff, the uh, all that, you know, we're shooting at higher resolutions and they're charging more to store to store the higher resolution, uh, the, the higher amount of information. And uh, that's another way that they're balancing it out so that they're not losing you know yeah it's yeah. uh it, it's it started out it started out it started out that way but it's 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 not so much it, anymore it used to be like i don't remember the amount of money but it was like you know you tuck your producer and they're like we're paying 47 cents a foot to sh of, for a film and you're like you know you could the money just kind of 
So we would cut after every single take. We would, in, in, if we're talking, we cut so that we're not wasting 47 cents a foot. Um, and the big change in digital is that now, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like, okay, if we cut, all the makeup people are going to come in, the lighting people are going to come in. We're going to, and then it's going to cost us 15 minutes just to try to re-roll again. So a lot of directors are now like not cutting. And they're walking in there, they're talking, and they're like, all right, let's go again. But that creates this massive amount of digital bullshit at the end where they have to they have to save all of this shit in between while the director's just talking to, you know, the actor. And, and that mm -hmm. they pay for that. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's true. We managed a way not to let them cut our budgets. Hayes, I guess they cut your salary a little. I know you don't like that so much. Across the board. Should see the craft service now, all the way down through there. <laughs> Carrot sticks. Um, Joe, I'm just—I want to go through a couple of these movies you worked on. Um, sure. Can you tell me about uh, the Pelican Brief? Uh, yeah, Pelican Brief was shot uh, between uh, New Orleans and Washington D.C., and I think a little bit in Richmond. Um, this and, was a John Grisham uh, movie, right? It was a, a John Grisham book. It was directed by uh, uh, Alan Pakula. Uh, McConaughey? And uh, I don't remember him being Alice in it. It was, uh, to kill. It, it was uh, Denzel oh, Washington, Denzel Julia Roberts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sam Shepard, um, Stanley Tucci, and uh, a bunch of other folks. Um, shooting in New Orleans for... You know, two months in like July and August was it was brutal. We were shooting almost all nights too, so uh, it was it was hot. It was sweaty. You, you just smelled stale, rotten beer and gutter water <laughs> all the time. But it was a blast to be there. Uh, our first day, our first day on set, the police, the the chief of police visited us to greet us and welcome us to New Orleans, and uh, everybody's gathered around for the serious speech and. Uh, producers introduce him and and he introduces himself to the crew and says, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm chief of police down here in New Orleans. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you and the stars and everybody here. Uh, we're looking forward to you having a great time. You know, our, our streets are open. Our city is open to you. Uh, we want you to have the best time you possibly can down here. And we just want you to know that as long as you're here working with this film crew, none of you is going to get into any trouble, no matter what you do. <laughs> Unless you kill somebody. And if you do, production has my number. You call me first. You make sure you call me first. You kill somebody. <laughs> and he was, he was dead fucking serious. We were like, oh, my God, where are we? This is day one. We already got an out if we murder. You know, hey, bonkers. So I've never heard that story from you. And I have uh, an almost identical story. When I was shooting the Dukes of Hazzard, I was, we were shooting down in New Orleans, and we were shooting a scene where the generally jumps onto uh, the 10 freeway into the middle of traffic. And so we shut it down for miles. And, and chief of police wow. came up to me and he, he goes, son, you getting any trouble down here at all? You give me a call. And he gives me the, his card. He goes, anything short of murder. And then he goes, <laughs> he goes, actually for you, murder's okay too. And uh, yeah, same thing. Same Perfect. fucking thing. Perfect. I was like, that's awesome. That's amazing. Um, that's a funny, that's really funny. Uh, what I just, I, I also have never asked you about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I mean, what were you, you were on crew on that film? You were on camera? Yeah, I was a, I was a camera trainee on Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, and this is, you know, film. So there was a DP operator, first assistant, second assistant, and me, the, the, the trainee, but I was also working as the loader, loading the film. Uh, that was an extraordinary experience to be in that room. Uh, to watch those actors, to listen to that dialogue, to uh, we would go to lunch and we'd be quoting lines that we had shot in the morning at lunch to each other because they were so fucking yeah. good. And uh, it was, uh, it. I mean, to this day, I, I remember, I remember it vividly as one of like the, the great experiences of uh, of of my, of my film career. Uh, Jack Lemmon was an absolute beauty of a human being. Uh, Always, you know, as soon as he'd, he'd be yell rolling just before action, he'd be sitting there twiddling his fingers and he'd go, magic time, 
magic time action and then he would go and he'd be writing character he had them he had them bring in a piano and we we were shooting a cop in astoria stages in astoria and he had production bring in a piano for him so that in between setups or in between scenes he could just go down there and play the piano and sing songs and it became such a thing that you know the the producers actually started getting worried because you know, we'd be doing lighting setups and there'd be 20 people down there hanging out with Jack Lemmon while he tickled the ivories underneath the set and no fucking work is getting done. Uh, what they ended up doing or what he ended up doing was he put a, a big snifter on the piano and he would take, uh, you know, he would take tips to play songs. And at the end, they donated it to a charity that uh, that the crew voted uh, on, you know, what, you know, yeah. where this money should go. Uh, but he was uh, he was fantastic. Uh, Alec Baldwin was on set for like two days. Blew the doors off the place. Yep. Scared the shit out of everybody in the room. Like, we were all just like, oh my God, who is this fucking guy? My you understanding know? of his scenes in that movie, those scenes, the ABC always be closing monologue, which is one of the great monologues that Mamet wrote, but it wasn't in the play. He wrote it because Alec wanted to be involved in the movie. He had only wow. a couple days to do it. So Mamet wrote that for him to come in and give that seminar to the sales team uh, and, and do it. And it's, yeah, I don't think it's extraordinary. I mean, you still remember it now, right? Yeah, that's did, right. Uh, do you ever, did you ever hear what Mamet said about Super Troopers 2? <laughs> no, I don't think I was on that text chain. He uh, was quoted <laughs> before the movie was coming out. He goes, I can't believe they're making uh, another Super Troopers. He goes, I can't imagine what it's going to be because the first movie was simply perfection. Wow. <laughs> I, know. I know. From David, David Mamet. Mamet. <laughs> Holy shit. I know. I know. Um, that should be on your wall, I Jay. I know. That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, that Alec Baldwin thing is incredible. I, I uh, It's, to me, the greatest... I mean, obviously, I'm not the only one, but it's the greatest monologue I've ever seen. Uh, mm. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's and incredible. the other guys who were in the room, you're like, you know, I mean, Spacey and 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 Jack Lemmon, and I mean, that whole thing. You're just like, wow, Ed Harris, right? Uh, yeah, so cool. Ed was great. Ed played on. We had a softball team. Ed was on the softball team. Matter of fact, this might be a story I can't tell. Uh, the director, James Foley was a little nuts uh but you know great guy he took a liking to me and his his sister was a pa on the on the show and we started we were seeing each other kind of during the run of the show uh at the rap party and i was scheduled to fly up to boston the next day after after we wrapped to to go to a movie uh, called house sitter with steve martin and goldie hawn so uh we're at the we're at the rap party and then uh uh I get I get invited to go back to the director's apartment for an after party. And I'm like, this is like my second movie. I'm just like, holy shit. Fuck yeah, I'm going. I'm on my way to Hollywood, man. This is awesome. So we go back to his his apartment and it's it's, it's Jamie Foley, it's Ed Harris, it's Jamie's sister, it's myself, and then some other person who I didn't know. Next thing you know, eight ball of cocaine comes out on the table. And that was it. I think... I think I made it home at like 9 a.m. the next day. I missed my flight. I was like fucking gone. But I didn't care. It was like one of those moments where it's like, I don't care what happens to me. I'm sitting here doing blow with that ass. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. And the camera loader from the back of the truck that was yeah. on the screen. <laughs> I'm fucking nobody. Uh, speaking of blow, right? Uh, can you tell us? Um, about your time on Carlito's Way with Sean Penn. Now, Carlito's Way, just so just to recap, it was this. It was a great like Long Island crime movie, if I if I if I have that correct, or New York City crime movie. Sean Penn, yeah, New York City, shaved uh, male pattern baldness into his hair and kind of created yeah. sort of a like a Jewish afro kind of kind of look. Correct glasses. Yeah. And I go into such detail because Steve Lemmy in Beer Fest copied looked like him. Copied that look. <laughs> he, he shaved male pattern baldness, went glasses, put on a, like a Jewish afro. Uh, and Steve Lemmy was like the victim of a little bit of like anti-Semitic action in the in the hotels in New Mexico 
uh, he said he would get a little, some comments from some of the good old boys for being like Jewish. And he's like, I mean, yeah, okay. Like he didn't, you know, he just kind of stayed in character, but I know Carly, uh, Sean Penn and Carlito's way. Wasn't he sort of a little bit method during that movie? He was quite a bit method. He was all in on the method. Um, it was, uh, he played, you know, he, he, he played Al Pacino's lawyer. Al Pacino's a guy who's been arrested. He's come out, he was a gang guy. He's come out. He's trying to go straight. He's trying to open up his own club. Um, but, you know, the, the forces of his past, of his previous life keep uh, encroaching. Um, and uh, there were a few crazy scenes. Sean had, a, had, a, had an assistant named Doc who had some bag that was full of stuff that would show up upon request. <laughs> Doc! Doc, come over. Things <laughs> would rattle around. Stuff would come out. We all kind of pretended not to pay attention. Um, but there were there were there were scenes where he was supposed to be drinking and doing blow, and our prop master, uh, a woman named Barbara Kastner, uh, a classic old school New York prop lady, uh, you know, came over. At, we're shooting a scene in I forget what it's an apartment or a hospital room or something, and Sean's drinking a whiskey with one and he's snorting with the other. And, uh, and she goes, she goes, Hey boys, watch what happens when I give him his Coke. Go, okay. So she walks over, she hands him the prop Coke, takes it in his right hand, puts it in his right pocket, goes in his left pocket, pulls out his own Coke and proceeds to do the scene with his own Coke. And we're all just like, I mean, we're assuming who knows? I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to label. <laughs> He brought uh, props. I, I, I kind of, it, it was pretty I bonkers. Know. Uh, uh, are you done with that story yet? No, yeah, but, you know, same thing with the booze. It would be kind of, you know, he'd he'd get his, he'd pour his own. That would be that, and off off to the races. Say his own booze. It was professional of him not to yeah. ask the prop department to furnish him with that. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he could go through the motion. Yeah, but he would he would walk on set. He would be in that zone. You would just be like, okay. I mean, what an incredible, incredible actor. And, and, you know, obviously, you know, this is not the first time people have heard that Chump and has probably done coke. Um, but, and I, th- but I'll tell you the second time they've heard it. So uh, when, uh, <laughs> when, when, uh, when I was making Dukes of Hazard in Knoxville and I went out every single night and it was like four and a half months. Like we just were like just glued together at bars uh, and, Occasionally, mm-hmm. he would get a call from some uh, kind of, you know, starlet or, or female. Like, he was like Mick Jagger at the time. Uh, but anyway, he and I, he's like, let's go down to uh, New Orleans. We were in Baton Rouge on a Sunday night. Let's go have, uh, let's go have a drink with Sean Penn. Uh, he's in town shooting something. And he, you know, everybody was a Jackass fan. I think Sean Penn was in one of the Jackasses. Um, oh, cool. Uh, and so we get to this, like, you know, some random fucking bar in the French Quarter, and the three of us are sitting around, like, a tall, like, high high top, and I meet him, and we're, like, we're kind of bullshitting, whatever, and we're smoking cigarettes, and Knoxville gets a call from, at the time, somebody, I won't say who it was, but she was, you would have wanted to get that call. And uh, so he, uh, you know, at midnight, you know, we've got there about 11. He leaves with uh, to go to this hotel room, wherever he's going to go, and he leaves me with Sean Penn. And I'm like, that's fucking cool. And, uh, and so we're, it's, and it's probably 20 people in the bar, me and Sean Penn, whatever, and, and whatever. And he's like, hey, you want a little something? And he just starts cutting lines onto the table. And I can't guarantee it was cocaine. I mean, it, it's, it smelled like it. But, uh, uh, and when I, <laughs> and we just, he and I sat there smoking butts and drinking and, and, and doing that stuff for, I mean, I mean, four hours. I mean, I mean yeah. we were there till four in the fucking morning. And Knoxville never came back. And we, I had a car outside waiting for me. Like, I guess that's it. And uh, I never saw him again. Uh, but uh, we had a good time. This is my best friend <laughs> in the world. I mean, you know, like we're going to hang out all the time. We're getting along so great right now. It's funny. He's such a famous person that in my like in my in insecure mind, I'm like, I spent four hours with the guy. We did all that. We had a great time. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't even know if he has any clue who I am. Like, and like now, I don't even know if he would even remember. But I mean, who knows? He, uh, although Pat Heffernan, Kevin Heffernan's brother, 
uh, was his key grip on a couple of movies. So, well, I was always hoping to meet him and ask him. I'm, I never. Yeah. Uh, what else is there? Uh, Devil's Advocate. I want to hear about that. Devil's Advocate was, there's a few stories. So that was a classic. Um, I remember, uh, first off, when we started the movie, they didn't know who to cast opposite, uh, opposite Keanu Reeves. So we had a casting call, a screen test, with uh, an insane list of actresses. And none of the other actresses were allowed to know who was coming and who was going. And we had rented this private studio on the West Side Highway in Manhattan. And uh, they had set up uh, a couple of dressing rooms that were separated so that the person who was coming and going wouldn't see the next person who was arriving and going. And they just kept rotating, rotating rooms. And, and the list was, it was, it was incredible. And it was, I remember it was, uh, Mariska Hargitay, Monica Bellucci, Penelope Cruz, um, Charlize, um, uh, Connie Nielsen, um, and I'm sure there's well, there's a couple more that I'm forgetting that were, but it was just like, you know, that was, and they were coming and they had to do one scene where uh, it was like a night scene on a, on a balcony. And then they had to do one scene where they were in their lingerie leading up to uh, making out. And uh, that was like day one. And we were all just like looking at each other, like going, holy shit, this is some big deal. What are we, aren't we lucky? <laughs> and uh, the, uh, uh, the movie itself was intense and long, and there were lots of people that were that were that were fired, and there was a lot of tension between the DP and the director, Taylor Hackford and Andre Berkoviak, and Andre would bring a camera person operator in, and Taylor would have him fired, and Taylor would bring an operator in, and Andre would have him fired, and mm -hmm. it was just like it was it was a it was a bloodbath, um, but somehow a few of us managed to make it make it all the way through um, when they. When they cut the uh, when they cut the when they were cut a, a majority of the scenes today, we had a bunch of courtroom scenes in New York. And we ended up flying out to L.A. to shoot the finale, where Keanu spoiler spoiler alert shoots himself. Uh, but there's a scene, there's a transitional scene for Keanu in the movie where he's he's representing a child molester, and uh, he it's the point at which he he puts winning the case over, you know, what's right. What a, what, a, what a morally pure person would do. Right, what's right. And at a point when the young girl is testifying against the guy who molested her, who's sitting you know, in the, next to Keanu, he looks over, and what they didn't have is a shot of this guy rubbing his crotch, like getting aroused while he was listening to the, listening to the young girl testify on stage. And so Taylor was like, I need this shot, I need this shot. At this point, we're out in Los Angeles, we've lost the other actor, we had to fly the piece of wardrobe in, what are we gonna do? Oh, fuck it, we'll just do it with the crew, let's see the crew's hands. So we, we did, everybody had to go stand and hold their hands up, and he walks through and he finally gets to me, he goes, you, Joe, you got the hands of a pervert, get the suit on. <laughs> like, okay, so if you watch the movie and you see that cut, that's me rubbing my balls in that scene. I remember that shot. I remember that <laughs> shot. That's incredible. <laughs> uh, I want to know, how many years were you on NYPD Blue? I did the New York portion of NYPD Blue for about uh, four, four seasons. Were you on season four or five three? seasons? I don't remember. Jay, I don't remember. Uh, possibly, very possibly. That was my, I don't know. What year would season three be? Uh, okay, that would have been 93, 92, 94, somewhere mm. there. I, I probably started on that around 95, 96 okay. and was on it till. So, like, yeah. We could have met uh, if it had been a little earlier because I was on NYPD Blue 93 or 94 or somewhere. Uh, I oh, like cool. What was your character, Jay? I played a, a motel, Lower East Side motel guy who has a beard and an Indian accent. And the, what's happened is some guy has came in and blew my friend away and his brains are in my beard. He has pieces of brain in my beard. And I'm introduced. It was just sponge. But I, uh, I was um, inter interrogated by the red-haired guy, and uh, Nick Turturro. Caruso, yeah. David Caruso. Yeah. Yeah. Caruso. Nick Turturro. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it was cool. It's fun. It was exciting. Um, I wonder if Jerusalem sorry, I missed had it. the signature uh, sunglasses on and off but move it, wait, at that point. It wasn't Caruso. It it it's the other, the other redhead guy in that show. It's like a shorter... I hope it was NYPD. Oh, like a little, a little stockier yeah, yeah, guy, guy, right? It wasn't Caruso. I would have. Yeah, he didn't have sunglasses. He was. Uh, it'd be weird if they put another red-haired guy on there. I wonder if it was even NYPD Blue. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I still get eighteen cent checks for that show. Um, uh, Tim Allen on richer or poorer? Can you tell me that story? Uh, sure. Yeah. For Richard or Poor was another one of these uh, boondoggly movies where uh, probably the most fun I've ever had outside of Super Troopers uh, on a on a film just because it was uh, it was just it was just a party nonstop. It was no 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 holds barred sort of thing. We were shooting. We were staying in Baltimore. We were shooting in the in the Maryland uh, horse country. So it was like an hour to set every day. We had built it's a story about a. A, a guy who's who's running away. He's broken the law as a as a real estate developer. And he and his wife Kirstie Alley are running away from the law, and they end up in an accident, and they're in Amish country, and then they take on the identities of a couple of Amish uh, Amish people, and they try and try and you know hide hide amongst the community. So uh, you know we were having lots of. Uh, there were lots of group parties. We had there was a, a bar around the corner that had uh, uh, lesbian karaoke every Tuesday night, which became very popular with the crew. Uh, there was another bar that remained open from like uh, midnight till six in the morning, which is where all the flights that came into Baltimore, all the all the all the flight crews hung out. So we got we got to meet all the people that came <laughs> went flying in there. But uh, every so Sunday night, one member of the crew would host a dinner party, and it started small, but by the time we got about halfway through the show. Everybody wanted to show up. So every Sunday night went on to like two, three o'clock in the morning and we'd have to be down at the van at 6 a.m. So people were, you know, people were gonzo. So it's one of these Monday mornings, everyone's piling into the van and passed out. It just reeks of like beer and gin and weed. And we're all kind of passed out. The guys were, were pulling out of Baltimore and uh, across the, uh, the radio's on. And it says, actor Tim Allen arrested in Michigan last night for a DWI. And we're all, everybody kind of pops up in the van, like, oh, we're going back to the hotel? <laughs> the day's wiped out? We're going to get to sleep? Holy shit. Right? And so uh, next thing you know, uh, whoever in the van, a phone starts ringing. The AD's like, oh, no, no, blah, blah, okay, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Okay. Yeah, keep going. We're going to keep going to set. So everybody's like, ah, fuck it. And oh, passes no. back out. So we get to set. Tim's not there. We start shooting some scene. We've got a scene with him where he's got to be, he's riding his buggy with uh, Kirstie Alley down a long country road to, to, to go meet some other Yoder or Henner Lap or something. Uh, and uh, we finally get word that he's shown up. Okay, he's, at the, uh, he's in hair and makeup. Uh, okay, he's on his way to set. What we didn't know is that the producers had actually called the local police so that when he got in the buggy and started ch you know, chugging down the road, they had set it up so that the, so that the local cops were going to pull him over, give him a breathalyzer, and then lock him to the wagon wheel which is what happened. So now we're, we're going down, he's going down the street, the cameras are rolling. Woo! Police car rolls up. Uh, yeah, Mr. Allen, need to see you for a second. Boom, they get him down. They drew this fake breathalyzer. He's like going, what the, what the fuck? And we're going to need, the cuffs come out, they handcuff him to the wagon wheel. And he's like, hey, what's going on? And then the producers come out and go like, thanks so much. Thanks so much for fucking up our day. Thanks so much for being here. We really love you. I hope you get over this. And he was just, he was losing his mind. He was, uh, it was, it was just, it was just a beautiful moment for a guy. He was, he was a ball breaker. So to get him back a little bit was great. I mean, you're talking about Amish a guy who did prison time, right? I mean, I know. you might have a fucking gun on him. You never know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was he was nonplussed at the start, but then he made it. Then it became a. Then he rolled with it. He he, he was a good sport about it. Um. All right. Cool. Uh, I mean, we could go on forever, but uh, uh, what well, I guess we should probably uh, should we talk about quasi or Easter Sunday or I mean, Joe and I, I made uh, the last Broken Lizard film, which you worked on with Kevin Heffernan. Uh, a lot of it was. I mean, it tried to make it 
like all the night shoots had to be looked like they were lit with fire, right? Um, mm-hmm. Fi- fire, moonlight, or sunshine. Those were our three sources. Is that a con- was it a hard movie to light? Well, it's funny when when you're given that when you're given those restrictions, all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is what I have to work with, and now you kind of you kind of know what you have, and you just expand on that. It uh, in a way it makes it it makes it simpler. Uh, so it's like, okay, how do I just lean into this? So that was uh, you know it was it was difficult in terms of the sets with the with the um, uh, the dungeon because it was so dark. The, it was so dark. There weren't really many windows. There weren't many many places to to push in natural sunlight. So that made that that was a little difficult. Uh, so was the uh, the torture cells yeah. where uh, Lemmy was locked up, and uh, but uh, but otherwise, you know, it was it was it was fun. It was a fun challenge. I love the look of that movie. I thought it looked great. Oh, cool, man! Thanks. It was fun. How uh, would you describe the differences are between Heffernan and I as directors? <laughs> hmm. As I see legal... career guardrails coming out. <laughs> <laughs> let's skip it. Let's skip it. I'm with you. You're right. Uh, okay, let's get to the the part where um, where we uh, promote uh, something we vouch for. This is for Vouch Vault, the app uh, that I created with these two guys. That's sort of like the Instagram of recommendations. And if you if you sign up for Vouch Vault, I'll follow you, and you. And you basically just put everything that you love uh, the most in the world, like restaurants, your book you're reading, television show you love, movies, weed strain, whatever. So I'll start us off. I'm going to vouch for this book, Postcards from the Edge. Is that it? Yeah, From the Edge. Uh, You know, I remember this book. It was written by Carrie Fisher. Um, You know, it was after she had played Princess Leia, I believe. I mean, she was sort of a famous uh, drug user, uh, addict. Um, And she, you know, the book is about uh, a a fictitious actress who goes into rehab and then comes out. And it is so goddamn funny. It is like, it's as if she was a stand-up comic. And then you, when you read her, she's like so brilliant and so funny and so detailed and such great weird little... uh, non-structure and you, and you remember now you know she was in blues brothers um with and dating john belushi and that was the movie where belushi became a cocaine addict uh and you can kind of put it all together you know you can put it all together she's funny she liked cocaine all that uh and um <laughs> and she was a hell of a fucking writer i mean just a hell of a writer now i, I saw the movie and i vouched for that uh about few months ago and Meryl Streep played her in the movie version of it. The movie is uh, incredible, but this book is just magical. Postcards from the Edge. What made you pick that one up so many years later? I'll tell you why I didn't pick it up originally, and it's entirely because my the old me was a little more fixated on, on, being, on doing the things that men do. Uh, like I wouldn't wear, wait, wait, this is the old you as of a couple months ago. <laughs> I got a little bit of that left in me, but well, obviously well, why is this I didn't get a text or an alert. I didn't know there was a new J. Like I, I see guys that. walking around with like light pink shirts on and I'm like, yeah, it's a straight guy. I mean, uh, I still haven't gotten there yet. Right. I mean, you know, when, when we go to, when we go to like Nantucket or, or, uh, Cape Cod in the summer, my wife forces me to buy a whole new wardrobe so that I can mm. meld in with these like, you know, East Coast cats. Now, I, I went to prep school. I know what they're wearing, but I've got I got like I got a pink and white striped shirt in my closet. I got like green shorts. I, it's also a costume. Got, I put on this fucking costume. You've and got, got, you got range. And I'm like, oh. got range. <laughs> and, uh, so but I was, you know, I was against the idea mm. like I, I like I wouldn't go to originally when yoga came out, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Uh, and, and this book fell through that macho crack for me because I was like, ah, Carrie Fisher, I princess Leia. Meanwhile, she's like, uh, I would call her a comic genius of the ages when you read this book. Yeah. Yeah. She had like a really long running one woman show that she toured with for years. 
that I saw. It was yeah, she's I missed it. It's great, Jay. I love that you. I love that you've totally turned the corner now. I didn't. I didn't know I'm, until you talked I, about postcards. I'm basically from the a edge, woman now. I mean, I'm like I've. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you know. <laughs> my mind is open. I I will, I will vouch for. We've been talking about a lot of movies. Uh, I think people are going to hear about it more now because. Uh, the award seasons uh, come around. It got nominated, but I watched Anatomy of a Fall, um, which uh, I didn't know anything about when I first started watching. I didn't know the genre. I didn't know that it was a foreign language film. It's partially in English, but it's you know eighty percent in French, and I can't say much about it because I don't want to give anything away. Um, other than it's you're on the edge of your seat wondering if. What happened? Is this woman innocent or guilty? The the whole movie, and it's really fun to like. It's one of those movies you can't have your phone out. You got to pay attention because you're going to miss a piece of information that's subtly being delivered. And uh, the performances were incredible. It's about a guy who falls off a roof, um, and then it, it becomes an examination of this uh, marriage and this family. Uh, and it was just, I thought it was awesome. Cool. I got it downstairs. I'll watch it. Yeah. Very cool. I have the screener too. Yeah. Um, this week. Anatomy of a Fall. Who was the actress in it? Um, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I think she, she got nominated for an Academy Award though, I think. So we'll all know her. She's speaking English. The marital scenes, the best part about the movie is the kitchen sink fight scenes between this couple of a guy that you've known that his fallen or not fallen or whatever happened to him off this roof and then you get to see through the course of the movie what he was going through prior to the event and um they're just they're great i, I love good fight scenes in movies uh, amongst couples and i put put those up there with the best of them um, it's good i was asking because i was wondering if it was this actress named isabel umper because uh, I heard about a, um, I, I'm sure I have the name wrong, but she was a French actress. She's still working. And apparently when you shoot her single, you know, she's obviously whatever, she's lit and all that stuff. But when you flip around to the other side, she leans way into the frame to try to obscure the other actor's face. Uh, and they call it the umpere. And, and, and she's just kind of... <laughs> Blocking like this, he's leaning in. Ouch! <laughs> I worked with the crew. You know, there is a shot like that in the movie where it's on somebody's back. I don't, I don't know. I thought it was a choice, but uh, I'll see. And it, 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 like she leans like yeah, this. Somebody France, leans like this the into the shot. shot. You see the back of that. Yeah. <laughs> Do they teach it at NYU? I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> In the half class you went to, yeah. they get you uh, <laughs> uh What do you got, Joe? Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to vouch for a region of Europe. Uh, this summer, uh, my wife and I went to Puglia, which is the heel section of Italy. And had an extraordinary time. We we're there in July, for two weeks of July and a week of August. And if you haven't been there, if you're not familiar with it, it's like a completely different uh, world from the, from the rest of Italy. Uh, uh, the, you have the Adriatic Ocean, which is beautiful, clear, blue, and warm. Uh, you have these beautiful feudal cities uh, that are small and easy to access uh, and friendly. Uh, it's affordable. The food is fantastic. And you have miles and miles and miles of olive tree groves. And these trees are between 800 to 1200 years old. And you look at these things and, you know, they're like almost like right out of middle earth, uh, as you, as you, as you drive by them, uh, had an extraordinary time. We were staying in Ostuni, which is a famed white city, uh, another city there, Lecce and another city, uh, Cisternino, uh, Beautiful, uh, beautiful architecture, beautiful history. Um, couldn't couldn't speak more highly about it. I actually I absolutely loved it, and I would go back there in a heartbeat. When you got there, did you tell him John Gambino sent you? 
Uh, <laughs> I didn't have to. I had a shirt that said, I'm with Charlie. <laughs> oh, Charlie gave me that. Sorry, Charlie gave me that. Yeah. Right. that joke up. Anyway. I think that's the first time someone's vouched for a region. I know. I know. We haven't that's had anyone. Incredible. That's great. Charlie gave me that. I love uh, that. All right, Joe. That was uh, fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, we're writing oh. quickly, so we'll go make another movie soon. Please, please. It was, this is great. Great to see you both, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, hope we get to see each other in person soon. This is this is a blast. Thank you for having right, me. Cool. Thanks. Great to see you, Joe. Mustache Tales.